The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I think we should start. I have 6.30. Let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we can spend tonight as brothers and sisters in Christ studying your word. We're grateful for it, Lord. Thank you um, that you can do all things. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in Scripture. Father, I pray that as we study you tonight that there would be a sense of refreshment and enjoyment similar to eating a wonderful meal. I pray that your Spirit would take the words and just press them into our hearts and make us delight in you, Lord. You're an incredible being, and I pray that as we study your word tonight that we'd be uh, really ravished by who you are. Be with us tonight that our time would be well spent in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is uh, our systematic theology class, and uh, what that means is that we are studying the doctrines in Scripture topically, going across the Scripture kind of horizontally rather than deep into the Scripture exegetically. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and so we are uh, right now on the topic of the doctrine of God. And you've got on the front page of the handouts there the um, outline of God's communicable attributes, um, and we're working our way through those attributes. The communicable attributes, what we mean by that is those attributes that God communicates with us or shares with us in some degree. Uh, there are incommunicable attributes. Uh, can you remind me of one of those? What would be an incommunicable attribute of God? Omnipresence. Invisibility. That's right. I've felt invisible before, but uh, actually invisibility to some degree is communicable in that the saints who are with God in heaven are invisible right now. But um, at any rate, omnipresence certainly is one. Brevard, what did you say? Omniscience is another incommunicable attribute. Omnipotence. Get the three omnis. Sovereignty. I was saying to my one of my kids earlier this week, I saw something on a poster. You've probably seen this before. The two great laws of the universe. Number one, there is an omnipotent, sovereign God. Number two, you are not him. <laughs> so I had to convince this particular child of that. It was a specific application that we were going through at that particular moment. But um, yes, om- omnipotence or sovereignty is incommunicable. One more, an incommunicable attribute. Immensity, that God uh, fills heaven and earth. It's an incredible thing. Well, those are the incommunicable attributes, and they give us a sense of the greatness of God. Last week, I talked about the little children's um, prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Uh, The incommunicable attributes give us a sense of the greatness, the greatness of God, and he is a great God. But here we have a sense of the goodness of God in one sense, and that is the communicable attributes. And what Grudem does for us in his systematic theology is divides it into four, sorry, five categories. Attributes describing God's being, his spirituality, and his invisibility. His mental attributes, namely omniscience, wisdom, and truthfulness or faithfulness. His moral attributes, and we'll be spending our time in that category tonight. His goodness, his love, his mercy, grace, and patience, all in one attribute from Grudem. Um, Holiness, uh, peace, righteousness or justice, uh, jealousy, and wrath. And then attributes of purpose, namely God's will, his freedom, and his omnipotence or power and and sovereignty. And then summary attributes, his perfection, his blessedness, his beauty, and his glory. So there are 20 um, communicable attributes. Now, we've already zeroed in on the attributes describing God's being and his mental attributes, and we've gotten now into his moral attributes. We started a little bit last week with love, and I'll review that uh, when we get to it. But attribute number six is the goodness of God. God is great. God is good. You know, it's funny. When you get to a simple word like that, it's really kind of hard to define, isn't it? What is goodness? It's really kind of hard to define. But this is what Grudem says. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So that's an interesting word, approval. There's a sense in which we approve of what is good. We want to approve of what is good. Grudem comments that this means that all that God is and does is worthy of his own approval since he is the final standard of good. Isn't that interesting? God approves of himself. He approves of his own actions. 
And he's also able to approve or disapprove of us and of our actions. So that's the idea of the goodness of God. Therefore, good is that which God approves. That which God approves. So the goodness of God is what he approves. And so if we want to be good, we want to live a life that is uh, uh, that God would approve of. Now, the su- support from Scripture, first of all, that God is the absolute standard of goodness. Uh, you remember when the... Um, rich young ruler, I think, came to Jesus and said, uh, Teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? And actually he called them good teachers. So there's the double good, I think, in the Mark account. Why? Uh, he said, good teacher, what good thing must I do? So it's heavy in the word good. And Jesus answers, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What does Jesus mean by saying that? No one is good but God alone. The standard of goodness, only God measures up to that standard. Paul? It, it's intrinsic. It's all, all of the goodness is given from him or received from him. Okay. And so he is the standard of goodness. Is Jesus here denying his own deity? Does he say he is not good? Does he say that he's not God? Well, what does he say then to this man? He says, why do you call me good? That's a very interesting thing that he does there. He does that because we, frankly, throw that word around, good, don't we? You probably spoke it today at some point. Okay, good, I'll see you later on, or something like that. We say the word good with the greatest of ease. Well, this rich young ruler came to him with the word good very lightly in his mouth. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus could say, you can't do any good thing because no one is good but God alone. So there's that sense. But we uh, also know that through the blood of Christ, our actions can be approved by God. And we can talk about how goodness is a communicable attribute. We'll get to that in a minute. God's goodness means that he hates evil and has nothing to do with it. First uh, John 1.5, we'll get to this again in the holiness, so we're not going to talk much. But God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God hates evil. Uh, He does not approve of evil, and therefore it is evil by definition. Anything that God disapproves of is evil, right? We need a standard. God is the standard. And if if he frowns on something, it's evil. You remember at the end of the account in 2 Samuel of David and Bathsheba? You remember that? And it goes on with all of the things that happened and all of the provision he made and the attempts he made to cover his sin. You remember that story. He tries to get uh, Uriah the Hittite to sleep with his wife. He tries to get him drunk. Uh, Then eventually he kills him. All of these things. After this whole account, there's one simple statement at the end. But the thing that David had done was displeasing to the Lord. That's all it says. It's almost uh, a dramatic understatement. But that's enough, isn't it? He paints the whole episode in this way. It's displeasing to God. Therefore, it is evil. Anything that God is displeased with, uh, in this case, uh, as we're discussing here, is evil. Now, people can experience that God is good. You can experience it from the very first time you prayed the prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for the food, right? Now, you may not have liked what you were thanking God for, but you should have thanked him for it, even if it wasn't your favorite, peanut butter and jelly or something like that. People can experience the goodness of God. Look at Exodus 33:19. Somebody read this verse for me off the page. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, Chris, what is the context of this uh, verse in Exodus 33:19? Do you remember? The you in, in the verse, I will pass all my goodness in front of you, is Moses. Do you remember the time? I don't mean to put you on, on the spot. Basically, Moses wanted to see God. He said, show me your glory. And uh, Moses uh, wanted to see God's glory. Can't see God's glory and live. He tells him that. No one can see me and live. But he says, what I will do is I'll put you kind of in a rock, the cleft of a rock, and I'll kind of let all of my goodness pass in front of you. Now, it's interesting that God uses the word goodness here to sum up his being. He says, I'll let my being, my goodness, pass in front of you. And then he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Psalm 100, verse 5, it says, The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. 
His faithfulness continues through all generations. In Psalm 106, verse 1, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. His love endures forever. In Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Isn't that interesting? Taste and see that the Lord is good. God has given you, I believe, your five senses so that you may know Him. And so therefore, I think He's made delicious foods in order ultimately that you may understand this verse or this concept, Right? What's that? Those foods are sinful. What, haagen ice cream? Something yeah. like that? Taste and see that the Lord is good. But God still did create them, meant to be taken in moderation. There is something in the book of Proverbs about how delicious honey is. Don't eat too much of it, that's all. But at any rate, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we use our senses and we experience the goodness of God. God's actions are good. Psalm, I mean, sorry, Genesis uh, 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What is that referring to? What's he referring to there in Genesis 1? Creation. What in creation? Everything. 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 It's all good. Everything was good, including man at that point. So that means that God looked at man and man thoroughly and completely met with his approval. He was pleased at that point. didn't continue that way, but God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do what is good? Teach me your decree. Psalm 119.68. Psalm 104 is one of my favorite psalms. You go over the entire psalm, it's just a lavish psalm of praise of the wisdom and the goodness of God in the physical creation. Uh, if, you should read it sometime. We're not going to take the time tonight. But after God talks about all of his creatures, oh, let's look at it. Psalm 104. Open it up and you will see. Taste and see the Lord is good. Psalm 104. Now, if you look, uh, beginning at verse 1, Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. So it talks about the majesty of God, um, especially in verses 1 through 3. And then he makes winds as messengers and flames of fire as servants. Um, that comes over into the angelic ministers, really, in the book of Hebrews. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And then he talks about water, two different kinds of water, salt water, the water in the oceans, for example, and then fresh water. The salt water is put into a certain bounded area and he set a boundary and it can never go past that. And it won't go past that. God has made a promise never again to flood the earth. And so he set a boundary and it will not cross. But then he says in verse 10, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. Hey, there's a big difference between salt water and fresh water. One of them just covers the earth with its immensity and gives a a place for the fish to swim and to live. But the other um, gives us life. And so we drink it and we are, uh, we are, uh, we are made alive thereby. Verse 11, he give, they give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the bran- uh, branches. So all of these creatures, the donkeys, the birds, all of them are sipping or drinking this water that he provides. Verse 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is, listen, satisfied by the fruit of his work. What do, you, what do you think that word satisfied means? When you think of something being satisfied, what does that mean to you? You have nothing that you want. Okay. Every need is met. That's right. You're full. Thanksgiving Day is coming up, right? You know, at the end of the meal. Well, actually, you hit satisfied about two-thirds of the way into the meal, and you kept going, all right? But it just means that, you know, you're just full of all the goodness of what's been provided. Satisfied. You're full, complete, nothing lacking. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of God's work. He takes care of everything. So God created a universe that is needy and dependent. And then he meets those needs and those dependencies. God is glorified specifically in our dependence. We are totally dependent on God for life, aren't we? No, I'm dependent on my Kroger card. Well, listen, you know, that food had to come from somewhere. God provided it. And we are so removed by the fact that we're not an agrarian society. We don't realize how dependent we are on the rain falling and on things growing up in order to live. But if we were farmers, we wouldn't even wonder about that. But God is good and he provides. He makes grass grow for cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. He talks about feeding. Uh, Go down uh, verse 20, uh, 20 and 21. 
He says, you bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Isn't that something? A lion is looking to God to feed it, though it doesn't know it because we're the only creatures that can know God. But they're looking, the lions are looking to God to feed them, and he does feed them. He does. And then uh, they, the sun rises, they steal away, and then they lie down in their dens. And at that point, man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. Everything is ordered, right? The lions are out at night, and then the men get up, and they go out and work in the fields. And then he just stops, and the psalmist praises God. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in the Leviathan, which you formed a frolic there. Now look at this, verse 27. These all, these all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Do you see how all of the world is created to show us the goodness of God? He creates needy beings and then meets and satisfies those needs all the time. That shows the goodness of God. All right? It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Therefore, everything good in the universe comes from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do you see now the goodness of God to his enemies? How many good things does God give to wicked people who do not know him and never acknowledge him? He lavishes things on them. He is a good God. He is good to all he has made. That's the way our God is. God's goodness, page 3, is especially lavished on his elect children, goodwill leading to good gifts. In Romans 12:2, it says, Then you will be able to test what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a good will. And uh, that will is best for you, isn't it? Uh, Psalm 84, verse 11, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And then listen to this, No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Isn't that wonderful? No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now, why don't you take that verse and say, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? (laughs) Why not? Because apparently that's not a good thing for you. But the fact of the matter is, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at the end, all things are yours. Everything's yours. So why are you bickering and complaining, Corinthians? That's about what he says. You're going to get it all. The meek will inherit what? The earth. You get it all, just not yet. You're not ready for it yet, actually. There's work to be done. But God is good, and he does not withhold from you any good thing. What's the quintessential verse to prove that? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So God is a good God, and he bestows and lavishes good things on us. Okay, the goodness of God. Now, how is goodness a communicable attribute? Well, first of all, God commands us to be good and to love what is good, to do good and to hate all evil. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. You're supposed to love goodness. Well, the flip side of that, it's impossible to love goodness in God's sight and not hate evil. You can't just do the one. I just want to be positive. You can't just be positive. The universe has evil in it and you must hate it if you're going to be good. So good people hate evil. Psalm 97.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. And then Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Secondly, God works goodness in us by His Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And so God works goodness in us. Uh, by uh, he works what is pleasing to him god works what he approves of into your character praise god for that by his spirit he makes you good and then romans 15:14 i myself am convinced my brothers that you yourselves are listen full of goodness isn't that incredible and yet jesus said why do you call me good no one is good but god alone where did the romans goodness come from it came from the gospel it came from the blood of jesus christ and the power of the spirit in no other place and paul says you're full of goodness And then finally, all saints will be perfectly good in heaven. That means that we'll be perfectly approved by God. He will approve of you as good and will will perfectly approve of God and everything he is and does. We will approve of God, you see. We will love God and everything he does, everything he chooses, all of his works, we will approve, all of them. And so that's the standard, finally, of goodness. 
Tanya, you had a question earlier. Just one. <laughs> Choose your best. So I guess what uh, in some is I'll put it this way. Is God worthy of approval and therefore good, or is God good, therefore worthy of approval? Well, this is an ancient question, and we have to say the answer is both. Um, God is the standard and lives by the standard. He is the standard, and he is completely consistent with himself all the time. He never deviates from his standard. And so the question, you know, came up uh, at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham was concerned, you remember, about that? And he went to God and began to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that interaction? And he asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Doesn't that imply that he's concerned that the judge live up to the standard of righteousness? Well, he will. And Abraham need not have been concerned because everything God does is perfect. And he's willing to entertain the debate with Abraham, isn't he? To go back and forth and to entertain him. And in the end, he did what was right by rescuing Lot and his family and getting them out of there. And he even connects it to Abraham's intercession. It says, Abraham, or God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. That's exactly what the account says. So God listened. So it's a good question, Tanya. I think what we would say is both. God is the standard and he lives by the standard all the time because he's internally consistent. Because he improves himself. Oh, yes. <laughs> he thinks very highly of himself. Well, let me give you a perfect example of how God approves himself. What does the father think about the son? This is my beloved son in whom is all my delight. Listen to him. That's what he said to Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Trinity. He thinks very highly of the son, but the father and the son are one. So he's thinking very highly of himself because the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What does he love about the son? Well, himself. He approves very highly of himself. He thinks very highly of himself, and so should you. And as a matter of fact, if you don't, you're not saved. To me, that's what salvation is, that all of a sudden you think very highly of God like you should. And perfection, glorification, is you think as highly of God as he is high. We're not there yet. We still think too small of God. And that's why the scripture says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt. You can't make God any greater. You can't magnify him except in your own small imagination of what God is like. Isn't that wonderful? So God approves of himself and we eventually will approve of him too. Now, last time we talked about the love of God. I skipped the goodness of God and went to love and I just want to give you a quick review of what we did. We, we picked up on, on uh, D.A. Carson's uh, book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, but I kind of skipped Grudem's definition. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself. What does Grudem link love to? giving is that a valid connection between loving and giving well it must be because Wayne Grudem did it and he's a good theologian right he's thought I mean thought careful about well how would you substantiate this how would you link loving and giving well love is action it's not a feeling in mm -hmm. our culture love is feeling which vary with the weather right but God's word God is love it's pure action he demonstrates his love Everything you've been talking about so far. Okay, Jared. John two fifteen says that God so really gave His only begotten Son, and then in Romans five eight it says, "For God demonstrates His love in this: while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." In both verses, it equates to love with the giving of His Son. Very true. I, I strongly disagree with love not being a feeling. I mean, people can show they can love people by giving to them without having any emotion attached whatsoever. Right. I don't think that that is all that love is. I think uh, basically you connect the love, what we were saying earlier, with the approval and disapproval. Um, basically, when God loves something, it means his soul approves of it. And that's the essence of love, isn't it? If you love something, you could sit in your, in, your, um, you know, in your chair right here and just love your spouse or love a good friend, and you're not doing anything, but you are loving them in that your soul is heartily approving of them and you are attracted. There's a sense of, of affection. This is from Jonathan Edwards in which he says that, that true religion consists in the affections. What is affection? It's an attraction or repulsion of the soul. You're either attracted to something or repelled from it to a greater or less degree. You might really, really love something only just kind of like something. You might really, really hate something or just kind of hate something or dislike it. 
And so sanctification is where God takes the little hatred you have and bring it out to an incredible hatred of sin and takes the little love you have for God and brings it out to its appropriate level of God, right? So you're right, Tanya. But I think Grudem, I think the definition's not a perfect definition because it doesn't take in that affection side. But Jared has already pointed out John 3.16 is a very good example of how loving must give. And also in 1 John, if you see your brother in need and don't do anything to meet his need, how can you say the love of God is in you? It's impossible because love is so active all the time. Yes, Landon. I think it's uh, substantiated by 1 Corinthians 13 there where he defines God-like love. Love is because it's Mm -hmm. self-effacing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. That's right. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Yep. And in the little preface in verse 1, 2, and 3 in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I sell all my possessions and give to the poor, and if I give up my body to be burned, but have not love. Now, that's very interesting. He says, I sold all my possessions, gave to the poor, but I did it unlovingly. So there is a moral attribute, uh, an affection, a yearning for the good and benefit of the other that must accompany the selling and the giving. That's why Jesus didn't like it when they would uh, announce their almsgiving with trumpets because that's very selfish giving. You're having, you have no interest in the person that you're helping. You're, you have an interest in your own reputation. Paul. Invalidating that it's a universal equation. That I, I, I guess I'm just seeing a parallel to the contrast of works and works and faith and thanks. Mm-hmm. That if the love is truly there, the giving will flow accordingly. Mm-hmm. But and, and so, um, but it's possible to have the good and without the love. Yeah, it is. You know, as I look at this, we'll talk more about love being a communicable attribute. But the idea is. We are very clutchy, grabby, selfish people, aren't we? We're pulling in all the time. We have to be constantly trained by the Scriptures and by the working of the Spirit in us to be open-handed and give freely. It's just very hard for us, right? From the very first time we're able to say, mine, you know, whatever age. I don't know when that happens, but early, all right? Real early. You know, from that very start to, you know, to just giving freely, you know? Uh, That's a long journey for us, isn't it? And, uh, and, and it's a journey in the pattern of love. Well, what Grudem does for us, I think, though, is help us to think more accurately theologically about the love of God because the love of God is its own pattern. God is love, but he loves in a way that's hard for us to understand. That's why he calls the book The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And so there are five kinds of loves that he describes there. Number one, the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. And that all the other loves are based on that. God's providential love over all that he has made. And and we talked about that in Psalm 104, right? That shows love in that God takes care of all of his creatures and that he causes his son to rise in the good and the the wicked. God also has a salvific stance toward his fallen world that we get out of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, And so he, he has an affection or a love for the whole world in that sense. Okay? Um... You could say, for example, you remember the um, said scholarship, the Rhodes Scholarship was named after, I think, an English guy who just loved America and wanted to give to America. And so he set up a scholarship for certain people, like Bill Bradley was a Rhodes Scholar. There's others that go over to England and study, I think, at Oxford at, at the, the expense of this estate. So you could rightly say that this man who set up the Rhodes Scholarship so loved America that he gave specific scholarships to individuals in America to come over and, and study at Oxford. And I think that's the way it is with God and the world in John 3.16. He's got a love in general for this blue planet in the middle of outer space, all right, and he expresses his love specifically in saving and giving uh, Jesus. Fourthly, though, there is a particular effective selecting love toward his elect. We talked about that last time. Many verses support that. It's an effective love in that it brings us to salvation. It doesn't leave us the way we were. you know. And I'll tell you this right now. If you don't understand love number four, you will get no assurance out of Romans 8, which says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Right? 
Because if you have that weak kind of man-centered love where God's just you know, wringing his hands, he loves you, but he's got to send you to hell, my feeling is what good is that? You know, That God's been kind of feeling affection toward me the whole time while I'm screaming in hell. To me, my feeling is I need a love that's going to save me from hell. All right, And that's this fourth love. And it's effective and it's powerful. And it changes me from within by the power of the Spirit. And I'm so grateful for that. And then fifth, there are these this provisional or conditional love directed toward His own people, conditioned on their obedience. God gives good gifts to people who obey. And He withholds them from people who do not obey. So, for example, if you have a, a an active, fervent, faith-filled prayer life, you will have much more joy in the answers to prayer as seen in certain events, current events that happened that you prayed about, etc., than somebody who didn't care enough to pray. You'll take an interest in that and you will take joy in that. You remember when those two girls were, were captured by the Taliban? You remember that? You know, over a year ago? And when they were released, everyone who prayed fervently for them felt a sense of joy and fellowship and partnership in that release much more than the people who didn't pray. They just read it as another current event story. You see? So also those that are willing to lay down their lives sacrificially to witness to their neighbors and to their co-workers or to be a missionary, to the greater or less degree that you're willing to do that, you will have greater or less fruit and joy in your life. Right? It's provisional. Will you obey me on this? And if you don't, you will not know the joy of leading somebody to Christ. And it is a great joy. So this is a, this is a uh, conditional promise. If you obey me in these things, you will experience these blessings. Do you understand these five different kinds of love that God, that we speak, the love of God provides? Some people understand it that way, the way you're talking now. What I'm saying is you can kiss assurance goodbye at that point because um, if God is loving people that end up in hell, then what I'm saying is if he's loving them in the exact same way that he loves me, then the only difference is all internal to me and I need to hold on to him and keep obeying and doing all that kind of stuff. And the words of assurance... And clearly Paul's intending something by Romans 8. It's so dramatic you can almost get symbol crashes that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, it's laden with theological terms. And my feeling is, great! You know what that means? I'm going to heaven. But if in the other sense you have the sense that God loves everybody in the world the exact same way, then you either end up with universalism that everybody goes to heaven, there's no one in hell, which isn't biblical, or you can kiss assurance goodbye because he could love you, but hey, he's got to do what he's got to do on judgment day. So that's what I'm saying. You can believe it that way. Many do. Many do. They say God loves everybody in the world the exact same way, all five the same way. But clearly five isn't true. I mean, isn't it clear that you get some good things from God when you obey and some things you don't experience if you don't obey? That's always been the way it was. All right? The good kings in Israel had lavish blessings and full barns and all kinds of stuff because God was giving blessings on those who obeyed. So I think we need, we need to realize that, that God does not love everybody in the world the exact same way. Fourth has always been a struggle for somebody. But I tell you what, if you look up in the word, look up the word love and study it and look up these passages on election and predestination, especially Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is so strong in the love that he set on us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's what gives us, I think, a solid assurance. That's a wonderful question, Bavard. Very, very good question. Any other questions? All right. Well, the one thing that we're, we're noticing, if this world's not all that there is, then God's willing to do all kinds of stuff to our bodies in this world. I mean, he's willing to just stand and watch Stephen die and not lift a finger of his omnipotence to stop it. And yet he loves and delights in the death of Stephen the martyr so that Saul of Tarsus and others can get saved. Well, that's a little microcosm. How much more does he delight in crushing his own son so that we can end up in heaven, so that his justice can be satisfied? But it's, 
But I don't think he does that. I don't think he loves. I think what he does is he shows that loving is giving. And he just pours out his son for us. He just pours him out. And besides which, I think that, that the love that the father has for the son is just, our, the love he has for us is totally a subset of the love he has for the son. Because he loves us in Christ and no other way. I mean, you really don't have anything to offer, guys. I, I'm not trying to be insulting, but it's true. We don't have anything to offer. But he loves us in Christ. And therefore, he says that the love, he prays this in, in, I think it's John 17, that the love you have for me, you have for them. You know, that we are in Christ and that he loves the son and therefore he loves us in the beloved. So we're accepted in Christ. That's oh, a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Anything else, Tony? Quick. No. Deep, deep subject. So let's look at mercy, grace, and patience, which Grudem links together. Hey, listen, you can have as many attributes as you want. I mean, if you want to have 8, 9, and 10 here or whatever, this is 8A, 8B, and 8C according to Grudem. But he sees them as very similar, God's mercy, God's grace, and God's patience. He defines God's mercy as God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. Those that are in misery and distress. Sin has left many, many people in the world in misery and distress, such as blindness, deafness, demon possession, death, right? Uh, barrenness for a woman who wants a child, for example. Many expressions of the, of the misery that has come because of sin. God's mercy acts in that situation. He steps into that and he deals with us in goodness in the midst of our misery and distress. God's grace is God's goodness towards those deserving only punishment. Um, that's Grudem's definition. I might say that God's, God's grace is his determination to lavish extraordinary blessings on people who deserve eternal wrath. You know, it's like we're at negative infinity and he gives us positive infinity. That is the grace of God. It's not merely unmerited favor. We've talked about that before. God's patience is God's goodness, listen, in withholding punishment toward those who sin over a long period of time. He is long-suffering. Another, another ex- expression would be that God is slow to what? Anger. He's slow to anger. He's, he's very, very patient. Very patient. Now, let's look at scriptural, scriptural support. First of all, a verse that links these attributes together. There's a, a kind of an interplay between them. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So you see God's compassion, his grace, his patience. And he said earlier, he said, I will be merciful to whom I show mercy. And so he does all this based on his mercy. Well, let's look specifically at God's mercy at work and tenderness to the suffering. For example, you remember the time that David sinfully counted the fighting men in Israel and God said that he had to suffer some kind of punishment and he gave him a menu to choose from. You remember that? It's, it, you know, you can get, um, I forget what it was, three days of plague. Um, what were they? Do you remember? Three days of plague, a uh, certain amount of time being chased by your enemies in the yeah, desert, you know. Yeah, or war, I forget. But he said, one thing's for sure, I've done that chased in the desert thing twice in my life. Saul and Absalom, I'm never going to do that one again. So that one's out. Um, what did he end up choosing? He went with God. He said, let's let God be directly involved because what's going to happen is he won't be able to keep doing it. <laughs> he'll, he'll hit us with a plague for a while and then he'll just say, that's it, stop. He said, and that's exactly what he says in Second Samuel twenty-four, fourteen. David said to Gad, "I am deep. I am in deep distress at having to choose. Wouldn't you be? Well, let's see. What shall I take? You know, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let us fall into the hands of men. That's what he says. So he's counting on the mercy of God that God will get tired. And sure enough, that's what happens. God says, "All right, enough. Right in the middle of the plagues. All right." When Christ did miracles, it was done out of mercy, a compassion for the suffering. Remember uh, Matthew 9:27, which I preached on recently. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, "Have mercy on us, son of David!" So, what are they asking for? They want mercy, but what does that mean? Heal us from our misery. We're in darkness every day. Please have mercy on us in the midst of our misery. And then um, 
Jesus, uh, the demoniac of the Gadarenes, wanted to go around with Jesus and be one of his disciples following him from place to place. And Jesus would not permit him to do so, but he said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, listen, and how he has had mercy on you. You see? The mercy of Christ in casting out that terrible legion of demons from this miserable, suffering man. And then Elizabeth's stunning pregnancy after years of shameful barrenness is ascribed to God's mercy. And let me I want you to understand the word shameful. It's not shameful to me, but in that culture it was shameful. It was difficult for a woman who didn't have a child. And that's why you know Hannah is so urgent with her husband. Give me a child or I'll die. And he said, am I in the place of God? I can't, I can't make that happen. She's so urgent. She wants a child. Well, Elizabeth was in the same way. And uh, she ascribes it to God's mercy. Uh, Luke 158, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. You see the mercy of God operating in the midst of people's misery and suffering. Yet, mercy is closely linked to salvation itself. Remember the tax collector? Stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said what? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that is the sinner's prayer, isn't it? Please have mercy on me. All right. And then in Romans 9, 15 and 16, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What's the it there, by the way? What does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy? Yeah, well, what would be a bigger word? Salvation. I mean, really, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 9, isn't it? So he just sticks the word, you could just stick the word salvation. Salvation does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's the whole thing, by the way, about mercy. You know, One of you will say to me, that why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Right? He's dealing with this sense of injustice. And earlier in Romans 9, he says, is God unjust? You're dealing with a sense of justice because of election and predestination, all of these tough questions. Is God unjust? He says, not at all. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, that's very important. You've got to understand this. The question started out concerning God's justice. Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Let me ask you a question. Is it justice that you want from God in your own particular case? No. <laughs> Are you going to say to him, I want justice? Let me tell you something. God will be just with you that he will be just with you because he can't help but being just. He's going to be just, but he had to work out a way that he could both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And the way is the cross. So he will be just. Always he's just. But you know what I mean when I say, do you want justice in your particular case? Say, look, I don't want anyone paying my debts for me. I want to pay every one of them. If I owe something, by gum, I'm going to pay. Okay, fine, you owe 10,000 talents. The gross national product of the Roman Empire. That's what you owe. I'd be like, all right, you owe two trillion, and you're in jail till you can pay. Isn't that the parable that he teaches in Matthew 18? The man who owed ten thousand talents. Do you know what ten thousand talents is? Seven hundred fifty thousand pounds of gold. Why did he set it so high? That's what it is. That's what you owe to God for your sins. You want to pay? You want justice? Is it justice you want? No. Then what do you want? Mercy. You want mercy. Now, can you demand mercy? No. You can't demand it. You can't say, give it to me. You gave it to him. Give it to me. It, by definition, therefore ceases to be mercy. It's justice then, you see? And it isn't justice you want. So he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Read it in Romans 9. I'm not making this up. But this is how it works. It's the mercy of God that we want. And it is our salvation that it is merciful. Isn't it? All right. Hang on, Tanya. I want to get through this section and then I'll give you a chance. Grace is constantly seen as the fountain of our salvation. Now, we've talked about mercy, but grace, over and over, Paul says it's grace, that it's by grace that we're saved, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we're saved. We'll get to that in a second. Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. How? By his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He didn't have to do it. We didn't deserve it, but he did it by grace. He did it by grace. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 is the greatest statement on this. 
As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together uh, with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Look at what he says. It is by grace that you have been saved. By the way, do you notice who he says God who is rich in mercy? So you're not going to get far from mercy and grace or grace and mercy. They're really very similar. God who is rich in mercy made us alive. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He's going to put you on display forever and ever as trophies of his grace. Look what my grace has done. And not just with a few folks. I mean with a multitude greater than anyone could number from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's been a river of grace. It's not just a little or a few. A river. But yet comparatively it's few compared to those that are going to be condemned jesus said the the gate is narrow and the road is narrow and only a few find it but many are on that road to destruction and so it's a terrible terrible and a terrifying thing but yet there is a huge multitude of people who are saved by the grace of jesus christ that's the value of the blood of christ for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is a gift of god not by works so that no one can boast all right so grace is constantly seen as the source of our salvation. But frankly, there are other good things that come to us by grace as well. Not just salvation, but your spiritual gifts, for example. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why was it a grace to Paul to be able to preach the gospel? He didn't deserve it. Okay, but uh, grace would be uh, a blessing, God's riches. Why is it God's riches to Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles? He could have used somebody else, but the thing itself, is there any value in the thing itself of being the apostle to the Gentiles? Yeah, he gets to see people saved in every city. Everywhere he goes, he gets to be like a midwife to what the Holy Spirit's doing, bringing people into the world. And he gets to see it over and over. And he says, it's grace. I didn't deserve it, but everywhere I go, I get to see people saved. And so he's dealt with me in this way. All right, so at the bottom you see a list of what we deserved and what we received. This is what I think of when I think of grace. We deserve eternal wrath from God. We receive eternal peace with God. We deserved separation from God. We receive fellowship with God. We deserve a completely fruitless life. Dust in the wind, you know? What we do receive? An abundantly fruitful life. We deserve to be rejected by God. We receive adoption by God. We deserve careful and accurate, meticulous punishment for every sin ever committed. You'll have to give an account on Judgment Day for every careless word you've spoken. That's it. Court is seated. Books are open. What are non-Christians going to do at that point? Do you ever wonder about that? How in the world are they going to be able to survive that day? They won't survive. And we would have had to do the same were it not for the grace of God. Instead, we get uh, complete forgiveness for every sin ever committed, no matter how grievous. Rejection of every supposed good deed for motive's sake. What I mean is that you thought you had good deeds, but in the light of Judgment Day, they'll look to be putrid, really, because our motives weren't pure. What do we receive? We receive reward for deeds done by faith and righteousness. What uh, we deserve, we deserve isolation from all of the beings in darkness. Please tell your non-Christian friends that they're not going to have a party with their other unbelieving friends in hell. What do you think utter darkness means? Cut off from other sentient beings. You're alone, suffering forever. There's no fellowship in hell. What do we get? Fellowship with angels and other redeemed people forever and ever in heaven. In short, we deserved eternity in hell and we receive eternity in heaven. That is grace. Do you see it? Negative infinity, positive infinity. This is the grace of God and nothing else. We also see uh, the patience of God in waiting a long time to punish sin. Genesis 15, 16. But, you know, we really need to understand this particular one. God's patience is a mystery to us. We have a hard time with it, don't we? Why is it taking so long? How important is patience to you in the Christian life? 
How important? <laughs> Keep waiting for patience and I haven't gotten it yet. Why is it important to be patient in the Christian life? So Are you, you don't sin. So you don't sin. Okay. Because God is patient. Because, folks, we're still here. <laughs> and tomorrow we'll still be here, probably. And on day after day, waiting and waiting for what? To see God. To be free from sin. To be free from pain and death and suffering. Waiting and waiting. And why are we waiting? Because God's plan mandates it. It's the way of God. And so we have to wait for God to finish that spiritual temple that He's building. We're waiting for other people to get saved. And we're waiting so that we can grow up in our salvation too. I'll say, all right, so Genesis 15:16, God said to Abraham, I can't give you the promised land yet. Why not? Because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. What does that mean? What does it mean the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure? Four hundred years more. And what was happening to Israel during those four hundred years? They were in slavery. And they're multiplying, growing in number, and they're in bitter bondage. And why? So that God can show his mighty power by bringing them out. Right? God's ways are not our ways. And so he's waiting for the Amorites to sin to their full measure. It's like some pot and the sin is pouring in. And when it gets up to the trip level, it comes. Judgment. In the in, in their case, the sword of Joshua. That was the judgment. Sword of Joshua. And judgment came. But sin in the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Well, what was true of the Amorites is true of every single individual on the face of the earth. Romans 2.4, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, He says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. That is a poor use of time by non-Christians. They're using time very poorly. Time is meant for repentance. And what are they using it for? More sin. It's a terrifying thing, really, so that they are under greater judgment the longer that they live apart from Christ and never come to Christ. Terrifying thing. That's what patience is. But God is slow to anger, isn't He? He's a very patient being. Psalm 86:15. But you, O Lord, are compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving love and faithfulness. How did Jonah feel about that? He didn't like it. He was upset. He resented it. Look what he says in Jonah 4, 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, this is after the revival now, maybe the greatest revival in history. The whole city you know, turns around and repents and turns away from their wickedness. And this, these were Assyrians. These were like Nazis. These were incredibly wicked people. And, and they turned and repented. And uh, Jonah was not happy about it. He was very upset. Why was he so angry? He hated them and wanted God to destroy them. And so he's sitting there on that hill waiting for God to destroy that city. And after they repent, he said, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. That's why you sent me to preach. If you hadn't intended it, you never would have sent me to preach. Oh, Lord, he says, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents in sending calamity. Every word like a curse word coming from Jonah. But yet God was this way with him too, wasn't he? He was so patient with Jonah. So patient with him and with his rebellion. He deserved to be condemned for his sin. That's far greater sin what Jonah did than the single eating of a, of a fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's lavishing sin upon sin. And yet... God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness toward Jonah. And so God is slow to anger. He has patience toward the objects of his wrath. He speaks about this in Romans 9.22. Why is God so patient toward people he knows will never accept Christ? Well, he, the answer to that question is in Romans 9.22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Patience toward the objects of his mercy, the very next verse. What if he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? So he's there waiting and waiting on unbelieving people so that he may show by contrast the salvation that we have, the grace of God. And so God's patience is ultimately about salvation, isn't it? It's ultimately about salvation. I mean, you could say, I'm glad he waited for me. But now let's get going now. Let's finish it up. 
well, wait, there's other people, right? You want to shut the door of the ark. You're on now, right? Let's go. Come on, let's get the show on the road. I'm on. Yeah, well, what if it had been shut before you got on? Right? And so God's patience means salvation. He says that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And so he says in 2 um, Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he's waiting and patient. Look at what, he, what Paul says about God's patience. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. The logic goes like this. Paul's basically saying, look, if God can save me, he can save you. That's what he's doing. He's putting himself on display as a bad example of of an impenitent sinner who eventually God won over with his patience. So God's patience means salvation. 2 Peter 3.15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Summary, God waits a long time to punish the sin of the objects of his wrath in order to give a display of his patience to the objects of his mercy. God waits a long time to punish the sin of the objects of his mercy in order to bring them to salvation. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't get you right away. As soon as you sinned, knowing you were sinning against an eternal God, he could have sent you to hell immediately. But he didn't. He waited and he waited. All right, well, is this attribute communicable? All these attributes? Absolutely. First of all, um, God commands his people to imitate him in mercy, grace, and patience. In mercy, by caring for the suffering people of this world. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10. Which of these three, said Jesus, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy to somebody who's beaten up by the side of the road. That's about what he's saying. In grace, he commands us to imitate him in grace. Not that we have eternal salvation to lavish on anyone, but it has to do with how we treat our enemies, right? We should imitate God in the treatment of our enemies. That is very difficult to do, isn't it? Very difficult. But Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Yeah, love people who hate you and who want to kill you. Love them. Because, you know, some of them might be your future brothers and sisters in Christ. Church history is full of persecutors who turned around. It's full of them. And so, therefore, we should be patient with other sinners, shouldn't we? You know why? Because God is working out His plan in their lives and in yours. Do you know somebody who has some sin that they need to deal with? Can you identify it well? Some of you married people might be uh, very familiar with. You've got a program of change for your spouse, right? Well, let me tell you something. God has a program of change for your spouse too. But he also has a program of change for you. And you should be patient with God's work in that person because God is patient with you. He's patient with you. And so therefore, love is patient. Love is kind. That's what he says. And be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What does bearing with mean? What does it mean to bear with somebody? Cope with them. Put up with them. Yes, exactly. Is that easy to do? Well, no. We need to also be patient during trial and adversity. God is using your suffering to sanctify you and to help save others. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And 2 Corinthians 1.6, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient enduring, endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. My preaching in, Roman, in, in Matthew 10, the basic idea is this. God puts your suffering on display to save other people. That's what he does. He, he puts his servants up on display. They, they're caused to suffer and even to die. And how they suffer and how they die is so anointed by the Holy Spirit that people get convicted and converted around them. And he pours out your life so that they can be saved. Would God do that kind of thing? Well, he did it in his son. 
Why would He spare His Son but not you? He poured His Son out to death on the cross. He could do the same to you because all day long we're considered sheep for the slaughter. And so therefore we have to patiently bear up under suffering because somebody else might get saved as we patiently bear up under it. Okay? And ultimately we have to be patient to the end because God's, the Lord's coming is near. All right, we're at holiness and we cannot do holiness in one minute. Or actually we're done. So take these sheets and God willing we'll begin next week talking about the holiness of God. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the attributes that we've studied tonight, your goodness, your love, your grace and mercy and patience. Now, Father, these things are so rich. Father, I pray that we would live according to them. Every one of them are communicable attributes. Every one of them we are commanded to imitate. Father, I pray that you would help us to love what is good and to be good and to walk in goodness. Father, I pray that we would uh, love, that we would be open-handed and generous and that we would love sacrificially and unconditionally the way you did. I pray that grace and mercy and patience would be demonstrated in our lives as well. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that were here tonight, and I pray that you'd bless them as they study and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.